and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. All right. Uh, we're live, and today we're going to be hosting Chen Yu Yao on the Allen NLP Highlights Podcast. I'm excited to talk. Oh, so Chen Yu is a, is a PhD student at Princeton, and I was really excited to see recently that he was the, he was the first author on this paper called Self-Attention Networks Can process bounded hierarchical languages, which is extending some recent work about RNNs and hierarchical languages to transformers. So I'm really excited to have him here and to hear more about this paper today. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. I've also read some of yeah. your theoretic work. I'm also excited to talk about it if we have time. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So yeah, I think um, not all listeners will be familiar with like the kind of NLP like theory subfield that your work is building on. So I guess maybe to start, if you want to talk a little bit about like the goals and motivating questions of like uh, your paper and the papers that other people that you're, that you're building on and maybe how you started working in this area a little bit. Yeah, sure. So uh, to start with, I, I'm not like a typical like NLP theory guy. So I, I have this one paper, but uh, that, that's just one. So uh, mm -hmm. I think the motivation for this paper is uh, pretty simple. So I come to like SAL and uh, EMMLP and I read up some interesting paper about how like uh, transformers have limitations in processing from a hierarchy and how RNNs are capable of doing that. And I just think to myself, well, that's weird because we all know transformer seems to be a better model than RNN. And, uh, and now there are like theoretical limitations about transformers and they're like theoretic word that shows RNN is capable of doing this bunch of stuff. So uh, I just asked myself, is it possible to prove something positive about the transformers? And that's kind of the mm -hmm. motivation for this work. And I did not do this alone. So I talked with Bing Hui, who is the second author of this paper, a PhD student from Columbia. So he is a, a theoretical computer science person and I'm an NLP person. So one day we just chat about, it is weird, you know, we have nothing proven like positive about the transformers and we just chatted about this and uh, we just come up with the idea that's basically how this work is started yeah cool and just to clarify so the, the two papers you mentioned that sort of uh, motivated you were the the theoretical limitations of, of self-attention paper by by michael hahn is that right yes and uh and then john hewitt's paper about Bounded depth stack languages? Yes. Or yes, yeah. R's can, can process like bounded hierarchical languages. Yeah. That, that, that are the right. two papers that mainly motivate our paper. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, those are both papers I like, and I, I recommend to any, any listeners that, that they should also check those ones out. Yeah, so I guess like the other, another question about this is like, like as, as an NLP like researcher, like what are the kind of potential impacts that you see for this kind of research for core NLP? I mean, maybe it's more just like foundational and it's hard to say, or maybe like there are like ideas about like new models or, or like inductive biases of models or explainability. Is there anything like that maybe you thought of when you were working on this paper or like reading other papers? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about NLP theory is that people haven't formed like a pattern or, or like a, so, so let's say there are many ways to, to talk about like theory in NLP, right? For example, you're talking about like new models. We know there are many, uh, say, like linearized transformer or that kind of stuff, which uses theory to analyze if it's possible to make transformer faster or easier to like process content. That's one kind of theory. 
and you have work like us who tries to uh, understand the inductive biases of models in processing you know languages or, or formal languages and you have people that try to explain how attention works and how to evaluate better how to propose better evaluate matrix so i would say like the one thing charming about this kind of area is really diverse and the people are still like figuring out like what is the what is the most interesting thing to do and another thing um, i think that is very unique about nlp theory is that it uh, kind of integrates two branches of a uh, series to say so we know there's classical linguistic series about like formal languages like and all those like classical linguistic theory kind of stuff and there's also recent series about machine learning in general about models about like optimization so I, I would say it's really exciting to think about how to integrate those two kind of series and come up with something interesting and new yeah yeah totally i totally agree on the last point about trying to sort of like take deep learning theory but also the more kind of like uh, classical formal languages and uh, like chomsky hierarchy kind of stuff i think it's really exciting to to think about like where and if there are connections between those things. So can I interject a question here? So go ahead. Yeah. Both of you have worked on formal language theory, trying to understand like the, the capabilities of models formally. I really haven't. What would you say to someone in NLP, a listener who has really no idea what's going on with this or hasn't studied this stuff particularly much? Like why why should someone who doesn't research this care about it? What's interesting here for, for the average NLP person? Yeah, I think uh, the motivation that like, people 50 years ago proposed formal languages is trying to have like a theoretical tool that have properties of natural language, but is easier to handle in math. So uh, if you think about regular languages, it tries to capture the hierarchical structure of natural language. And uh, we know like Chomsky hierarchy is a very classical like computational model theory that tries to uh, analyze what, what kind of models can process regular language, what kind of model can process like context-free languages. So it's really trying to simplify natural language and have some simpler like mathematic, mathematical characterizations of natural language to understand like what kind of computational power can handle what kind of like properties of language. And I think even in the deep learning area, that kind of idea still applies. And I think that's why like we're still using those formal languages to, to study like newer models like transformers because they uh, capture some aspects of the uh, natural language. And we're trying to understand if they can successfully process those kind of properties like hierarchical structure or something else. Yeah, I think like uh, the abstractions of formal languages can be useful in the sense that like data is sort of an unknown when we're training our models. And it, it's useful to have some kind of idea, like an abstract level of like what is in the data or how the model is processing the data when you can't you can't really have a super like fine-grained vision and that's that's sort of where like i guess a concrete example is um this paper from 2018 i think about lstms and and counter languages where before this point like people thought of lstms and gru's as like roughly equivalent models but this paper demonstrated a pretty like sort of uh, basically that lstms can like count with their memory whereas gru's can't and this gives like a clear intuition for like what the difference between these models is and why like an LSTM might be better on one task than a GRU. So I think I think that's like a, a very nice example. And hopefully we can like get the same kind of characterizations for transformers 
and other models as well. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. I guess another way of thinking of this is if I have something specific in my data set that I want to be able to model, it would be good to know if the model class that I'm using is theoretically capable of modeling that thing. Right. Yeah. Great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. And I guess I think one of another interesting question is like the tension between uh, representability and like learnability. And it's often easier to describe like the kinds of functions that a neural net can implement. But, and like in theory, you know, neural nets with lots of precision can implement anything. But maybe the more interesting question for practitioners is like, what are they likely to learn and trying to characterize inductive bias? And I think that's like a really interesting open question as well. Definitely. It will be like a next step challenge, not only for NLP, but I guess for machine learning in general. That's really a hard, challenging question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess we can go back to talking about your, uh, your paper then. So maybe we can start just, I mean, you already hinted at this, but sort of like the motivation for your work and like maybe talk a little bit about like the bounded depth like languages, what those are and like why they're interesting. Sure. So, uh, Actually, this like language has like a long history. So it is proposed to uh, to study the hierarchical structure of natural language. And to give a concrete example, I refer to this sentence in my paper. So laws, the lawmaker writes and revises paths. So if you think about this sentence, it has a clear like hierarchical structure. So uh, laws, the lawmaker writes and revises is an object, and paths is like the verb that is associated with laws. So if you think about the laws object, it is expanded as like laws that the lawmaker writes and reveals. So that's kind of like an example of the hierarchical structure I'm talking about. So Chomsky and those guys like proposed this Dyke language like 50 years ago as like a classical, like regular language. And actually they, they proved that any like context-free language can be obtained from a like language through intersections with regular languages and homomorphisms. So that means this language really contains the essence of all context-free languages, which is the hierarchical structure and uh, recursion and central embedding and that kind of stuff. And just for concreteness, could you like give an example of like what the Dyke language is? Yes, I, or... if you think about this, like how to do this in a yeah. broadcast and. Uh, it's kind of hard. So, okay. So let's say like left and right is kind of like a pair of brackets. And uh, that's like the simplest uh, example of like a dike string. So you can think of also like left, right, left, right, or left, left, right, right. But uh, left, so basically it is consisting of all the well-listed brackets. So another way to think of this is kind of like a stack. And uh, you have those push and pop operations. And the idea is that anything you pop has to be pushed first. So if I say like push one and then pop one, that is like a value string. And but I cannot say like push one and pop two, that's invalid. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is valid to say like push one, push two, and then pop two, pop one. But I cannot do push one, push two, pop one, pop two, because at the time you are supposed to pop two. I, right. I think it will be easier to understand for like CS persons. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good, uh, a good description. Yeah, but um, yeah, but formally it is just the language of uh, well-listed brackets of K-types. 
And uh, I encourage you guys to look at the paper to see like a more uh, visual like explanation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I guess like specifically in your paper, you're also talking about the bounded depth like languages. So you want to explain what that is quickly? Yeah. So like continuing on the the push pop like example, we know the essentially it's kind of talking about a stack and the stack can have like a depth limit. And that kind of defines what a uh, bounded like stack language is. So sup suppose we are saying that the stack depth limit is like three. So you can do push one, push two, push three, and then pop pop three, pop two, pop one. But you cannot do like push one, push two, push three, push four, because at the time, like when you push four, like the depth of the stack is already three and you cannot push anything anymore. So basically it's trying to limit the maximum recursive depth of any string to be at most D. And that's kind of the definition of a bounded dike with a depth D. Mm -hmm. And I guess the motivation is to sort of make it more practical, like, like natural language, right? Because humans tend not to have too deep of a stack depth when they produce sentences. Is that right? Uh, for sure, yeah. So uh, it's well known that central embedding depths of natural language sentences is uh, rarely uh, more than three. So that gives kind of a nice motivation why we study this uh, bounded dike language. And also, if you think about processing this unbounded like dike languages, intuitively, you might like need a stack with infinite depths. And that's kind of an unpractical assumption. So from that point of view, it is also natural to assume there's a, a bounded depth on the stack size. Right. I guess, so you would have, it's, an inf it's a stack that has like unbounded depth, but it's, it's always finite, but it can get as large as possible, right? Yes. The, yeah, right, okay. Their paper is basically arguing that uh, transformers have limitations to process the stack language. However, they are considering the unbounded depth version. So, uh, so I guess that the, the point is that any like realistic model is really difficult to handle those unbounded depths of stack languages. And that's kind of the motivation we're studying this bounded depth language, which is more natural for all the realistic models. Right. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also a slight difference in the model of transformer that they use and the one that you use. Um, in your paper, I think you allow attention to, uh, like you don't have hard attention. You have attention that can go across multiple positions. Whereas in their paper, um, the main limitation is for transformers where you have to select one uh, position to attend to. Is that right? Yeah, so, so actually both uh, Michael's paper and my paper uh, consider roughly two types of transformers. So first type yeah. is called hard attention, which means like each token can only attend to one other token. So okay. hard in the sense that you, you can only attend to one other token. And Another type of transformer is uh, self-attention, which is uh, what NLP people use all the days. So basically you have a self-max and you can attend over like all the other tokens with uh, a weight that's sum to one. And mm -hmm. that, that is like the, the standard practice of NLP. Great. Okay. So yeah, I guess we can get into talking about the results now. Maybe like what's like the main, the main results in like a like TLDR format that you would like to highlight? The paper. Yeah, so uh, 
I think the TLDR will be, even though like self-attention network, like are using kind of like distributed way of sequence processing, and it does not have like a explicit recursive element like RNs. We do show that they can systematically process this uh, bounded hierarchical language of bounded depth. And not only in one way, but in two different ways. Uh, one way for the hard attention networks and one way for soft attention networks, and they're quite different. Mm -hmm. Cool. And like how much, how much memory do you need in order to implement this construction? Like, is it, is it practical? And like, like what are the assumptions there? Yeah, so, uh, so think about back language with uh, k types of different brackets and depth limit of d. So previously, the, the uh, John's paper uh, shows that like recurrent networks need basically uh, O d times log k memory to process this back language. And we're showing that actually transformers can use a memory of uh, O log k per token. And so that is like a d times uh, overhead in terms of the memory. Great. Right. And I think that there's also a difference in the, the precision though, right? So like your, your paper is allowing for log n precision, I think. Yeah. So another difference yeah. is that the recurrent networks, they can operate in like constant precision, whereas mm -hmm. the transformers have to operate in O log n precision, where n is uh, uh, input length, because we have to represent the positional encoding of n different tokens. So that is kind of a hard constraint. The transformers. Right. Can right. you tell me and listeners what precision is referring to here? This is on the weights of the transformer. Sure. So, so basically, it means that the precision of the float number system. So, if you think about the our current computer is either like thirty three bit or, or sixty four bit. So that's kind of the uh, precision I'm talking about. So basically, how many bits you use to represent each uh, float number. Okay. Okay. So the the bounds that you get on the memory requirements depend on your like how many bits you use for representing floats in the weights and activations of the network. Uh, yes. Okay. Got it. Thanks. And I guess specifically, like the reason why you sort of have to use log n for transformers is because you have these positional encodings that are growing with n, and in order to grow that embedding size, the precision needs to grow with n as well. Yes, that, that is right. Yeah. Yeah, so, so do you know, like, I guess one, one question that, that comes to mind is, like, it seems like there's sort of a trade-off between your result and, and John's result, where they're not exactly directly comparable because the precision is different. Like, do you have an idea what would happen in the RNN case if you, like, allowed for this login precision? I guess because you, you can't really have the analogous, like, finite precision case for transformers. So that seems like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So actually, I talked to John about this. And uh, I think intuitively you can, well, so if we think about RNs using like log n precision, the, the memory requirement will just be something like uh, D times log k over log n. So basically uh, you can bundle like log n different bits together so that the memory need is like log n times smaller. So that's kind of the intuitive explanation. But I guess the reason that we separate uh, memory and precision is that precision is talking about like how you naturally represent one flow number. So obviously you can bundle like more information into one flow number, but uh, 
that's not a like a natural way to uh to deal with the uh, models that we're talking about so think about this log and precision kind of stuff we can like translate that result into like a constant precision but like a overhead to to the to the memory stuff but uh that's not natural in terms of implementation so that's why we still choose to separate the memory requirement and the uh, precision. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, like one one thing that's interesting about the the log n precision is like, as you like, if you're thinking about a transformer that's processing a dike string, at the beginning of the string, I guess for a shorter string, you actually have less memory like throughout the transformer than for like a longer string. So there's uh. There's sort of like some counterintuitive behavior where like maybe in a short string you can't process like embedding depth six, but like in a longer string you would be able to. I don't know. It it seems like an interesting kind of uh like yeah, do you have any thoughts about that? Sure, sure, sure. So I think one like most important observation in the paper is that there are differences how like recurrent networks and self-attention networks process, you know, those kind of formal languages. So yeah. Those you can think about that's kind of like trade-off between distributed way of processing sequence versus like a recurrent way of processing sequence. And that's really the most interesting to me about this paper. So uh, one difference is that for recurrent networks, you can actually process these sequences in like a online or a streaming algorithm kind of way. So you can keep getting new like characters in the string and you can, the, the differences of recurrent mechanism of sequence processing versus a distributed mechanism of signal processing, I think, like self-attention networks. And, and one difference is that for RNs, you can actually do this processing in kind of like an online algorithm or, or streaming algorithm kind of way. So you can keep getting the, the characters in the string and uh, you can keep maintaining the stack and decide like whether it is a valid stack string or not. Whereas for transformers, it's more like you have all the characters in the string already. and you have to do this in like a, a offline algorithm kind of way. And I think that's one interesting difference. And the second difference, of course, is this memory trade-off stuff. So if you think about like why RN needs like D times log K memory, whereas transformer only needs log K memory. Basically, transformer can leverage this distributed way of processing sequences because it could attend to all the previous tokens. That's why it doesn't have this overhead whereas like recurrent networks you have to maintain all the information in kind of like a centralized way across all the time and that's why you have this d overhead and i think that that's also like a huge difference right yeah that, that makes sense i guess and just just to be concrete the the log k memory you're talking about is like per one vector but they're actually like n different vectors right or maybe n yeah Yes, yes. So, so all the memory we talk about is uh, per token, per right. layer. Just, just to add, so uh, that's another reason why we think this O log N precision is reasonable because you already have to store N different tokens. So that's kind of like O N term. So compared to that, O log right. N is very small. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're making this point about sort of like the fundamental difference between the like autoregressive RNN and the more kind of distributed transformer and that like, I mean, I, I think this is something I've thought about in my own work as well, where it seems like a pretty fundamental difference. And like a lot of the kind of Chomsky like automata stuff is really based around this like autoregressive model. But but actually, like 
at least for processing text, like this, this model of getting everything at the start is like much more natural. And I think pretty interesting to, to keep thinking about. So yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Let me ask a question here. So we've, we've been talking about these numbers. We have D and K and N. N is the number of tokens. D is the, the recursion depth of the language. And K is the number of distinct types in the language. So like a, a curly brace versus a parenthesis versus whatever, right? Yes. We haven't talked about the number of layers in the transformer. And I'm trying to understand how you can even set bounds without talking about the number of layers in the transformer. Maybe you could help me understand this. Like I said, we have two constructions. So for the hard attention network, we actually need uh, a D different layers of transformer to process this. Whereas for the soft attention network, we only need two layers to process this language. And that's also like a trade-off because if you think about hard attention, you can only attend to one other token. So that's computationally weaker and that's complemented by more layers. And soft attention network can leverage like attention to different tokens. And that's why I only need two layers to process it. So that's also a very interesting trade-off and comparison. Interesting. So is this related to like the multi-layer perceptrons are, are infinite function apart are universal function approximators? Is it should I think of these as related results for like a two-layer mm, transformer? Maybe, but I guess it is uh, slightly different because Universal approximation is talking about, you know, how you can approximate any continuous function, whereas uh, we know this DAC language is more of like a discrete structure and uh, actually a very special, like hierarchical structure. So that's very different. Okay. Okay. I, I was, I was over-indexing on the fact that you only need two, I guess, and, and a follow-up uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, follow sure. question, do you, can you get better bounds if you have more layers? Like you, you show that you can do this with, with depth two. What if I have depth eight? Does it change my bounds? That's a very interesting question. So to be honest, we haven't thought about this. I like my intuition is that even with small layers, uh, log K memory is still kind of like the lower bound because that's the minimum number of bits you need to represent the K different types of brackets. So I think it will be hard to go like lower than that because if you go lower than log K, then you couldn't re even remember like what kind of a bracket you are and that's kind of hard okay thanks i guess uh, i'd be curious to hear a little bit about the intuition in your constructions sort of like how the trans transformer implements matching brackets and i guess you have two different constructions so you can talk about both of them yeah sure i guess it will be easiest just to look at figure one of my paper which is very intuitive but i'll try my best to convey that in a broadcast so sure. uh so for the hard attention network, the intuition is for each bracket to look for is a matching bracket. And that's why you only need hard attention because hard attention only attends to one other token, which is supposed to be your uh, matching token. So the other tokens, they actually form like a dark language, but with like a depth limit uh, reduced by one. So you can kind of recursively do that until all the brackets are matched. And that's why we need like the different layers to process it. So basically each layer, like we just net the innermost brackets match each other and then kind of disappear and then recursively do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, cool. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think the, fig yeah. the figure does a good job of, of conveying that as well. <laughs> Thanks. So I'm glad we got the, the audio version. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good chance to to yeah. uh, express and practice expressing. Yeah. And talking about the self-attention network, the idea is also very simple. So we only have two layers. The first layer is essentially trying to calculate the depth of each token in the stack that RN was supposed to uh, to calculate. So the idea is that each time you face like a left bracket, the depth should be uh, increased by one. And each time you face like a right bracket, the depth should be reduced by one. And the first layer of this self-attention network transformer basically calculates the depth of each token by uniformly attending to all the previous tokens. Mm-hmm. And, and the second layer actually just leverages this depth information to attend to the matching bracket. So basically, the matching bracket should be uh, the one in the stack that is uh, with the same depth, but it is uh, closest to you. So basically, you can use all the calculated depths to do like attention, and that's how you can find the uh, the matching bracket. And one thing to note here is that it achieves like lock memory because you have n different tokens, and you're implicitly maintaining a stack across all those tokens versus like RNs where you have to maintain like a centralized stack at each step of the time. And that's why like we have this memory advantage over recurrent networks. I see. Yeah. And just to clarify, when, when you're computing the depth, basically the idea is you're going to like add a positive one for every, every token that opens like or pushes Yes. and a negative one for everything that, that pops. Right. And uh, yes. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess like, are there any interesting open questions that maybe like this paper raised for you and you you've been thinking about or um, like kinds of follow ups to, to this work? Yeah. So uh, one detail that we haven't mentioned is that for all this like uh, dike processing transformer to work, we actually assume a very special kind of positional encoding. Uh, we call this scalar positional encoding or scalar PE. So the idea is that you have this separate fixed dimension in your uh, token embedding that ranges from zero to one. So suppose you have n tokens and the i's token should have a scalar of uh, i over n. So that's kind of the position encoding we assume in this work. And uh, so that's, that's, that's an important part of our theoretical construction. Mm-hmm. And also experimentally, we show that with that kind of scalar position encoding, transformers can actually learn from finite samples and generalize to a longer length of uh, input, but with more traditional position encodings like uh, learnable embeddings or, you know, like Fourier features, cosine and sine features, the performance is worse and the generalization is worse. And that's very interesting to me because, you know, in NLP, we have been using those uh, learnable position encoding and uh, uh, Fourier positional encodings. And this thing is just new and very interesting. So the reason that it's important for formal languages to use this scalar position encoding is uh, we need to do a lot of like position comparisons. And it's hard to do so with like Fourier feature or learnable feature. Whereas, you know, if you have this scalar, it's very easy to compare uh, token positions. But on the other hand, we, all, we have also done some basic experiments on, on Wikitext boundaries just to try and see if this uh, scalar PE thing works on uh, natural language. And uh, 
that's what it, it actually is, uh, performs slightly worse than the uh, traditional schemes. Oh, but still, I, I think it'll be yeah, yeah. But still, I I feel like it will be very interesting to investigate why formal language and natural language require very different forms of position encoding and what it means in terms of NLP research and stuff. Yeah, well, that definitely makes sense. I guess I had one question about your experiments. So when you're talking about generalization, are you talking about generalization to longer sequence lengths or to like deeper stack depths? Like, did you do any experiments where you trained on, let's say, k equals three or uh, d equals three and then extended it to like d equals five? That's a great question. So in the paper, we show generalization to longer lengths. So that's talking about n. Uh, however, we have also tried uh, experiments where we try to generalize from like a say d equals to 5 to d equals to 10. And actually, this kind of generalization is very hard. And Transformer didn't perform as well like in that kind of generalization. So it can actually perform very well when you generalize from smaller input lengths to longer input lengths. And I think if you look at the theoretic part of our paper, there is some explanation. So in our theoretic construction, it's kind of automatic how you generalize from smaller input to longer input. Because that is the fundamental strength of distributed way of sequence processing. Whereas if you want to generalize from like a smaller depth to a longer depth, if you think about the hard attention construction, it requires stacking up more layers. And for the soft attention network, it actually requires some uh, details about how you represent the depth information. And uh, it, really, it really depends on like what is the maximum depth that you count on. And, uh, if you read the paper, you will realize it's harder to generalize in terms of the depth. Yeah. Also, this is just a random thought, but you're talking about the how the the new positional encoding fared worse on like Wikitext2 and some other NLP kind of basic tasks. Well, to, to clarify, we only tried on like uh, language modeling on Wikitext, and uh, it's not like a uh, total failure. It's just slightly, slightly worse, worse than. Right. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if like redundancy has any anything to do with that because when you have a normal positional embedding, it's it's a full vector and it, it's adding a lot of like the same information in redundant ways. Whereas in this new scheme you have, it's just like one number of information and it could get sort of like get lost with respect to all the other information in the input. So like I guess I mean I, I this is just a random thought, but maybe like adding more redundant information would would uh impact that. Yeah, that's that's a great uh, that's a great thought, and uh, maybe think about different reasons, and that's definitely one of the reasons. And another one we are thinking of is uh, maybe in natural language processing, the absolute position isn't that important. Also, as evidenced by recent success in relative positional encoding. So, if you think about like a long sentence, it doesn't really matter. Like this verb is the fourth word or the fifth word. And sometimes it only matters like where it's early in the sentence or later in the sentence or how, how the position is relative to other uh, sentences. So in a sense, maybe well, the scalar positional encoding have like a too strong focus on like the exact position of each token. And it might hurt generalization. Mm-hmm. That, that's just one guess. But yeah, we have some hypothesis for those differences. Cool. This has been a really interesting discussion. Thanks for coming on. This has been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, definitely. Cool, cool. Thank you, Will and Matt.